Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In the September 2019 issue of the journal Civil War History, a senior Civil War historian expressed a negative view of blogging and social media in an article called The Internet and Civil War Studies. His conclusions were based partly on surveys conducted in 2016 and 2013. Now, in Internet years, 2019, 2016, and 2013 are a decade ago, a century ago, and an eon ago. We'll talk about what's happening now, in 2021, in digital scholarship and other non-traditional forms of research and publication, with the co-director and co-founder of eHistory.org and the Gregory Professor of the Civil War Era at the University of Georgia, he's Stephen Barry, and he'll join us tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment and community for the aftermath. Emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight, as has been the case for many months now, from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Pandemic Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, the same town as East Carolina University, but not in the Brewster Building, not speaking for the university ever, uh, just speaking for myself, and as always, our guest tonight will speak for himself only, as we do here at Civil War Talk Radio. Well, Happy New Year to everyone. This is the first show of 2021. The COVID pandemic is still raging, but there's hope now that vaccines have been developed and they will make it possible perhaps for us to resume some resemblance of normal life in the year ahead. Hopefully, we'll be able to resume battlefield tours, for example, this year. I'll keep you posted on that. A great deal has happened since the last show in December 2020. 
including uh, a week ago, today is January 13th, back on January 6th, there was violence at the United States Capitol. Today, on January 13th, the House of Representatives impeached the President of the United States. Civil War history is deeply entwined in these events, and rather than saying anything about them right now, I'm going to discuss them uh, with our guest tonight because there, there's too much uh, involved here that relates to the history that we all study uh, for us to simply overlook it. So we'll add that to the agenda later this evening. Here on campus, or almost on campus, near campus, at East Carolina University, we've got a new chancellor. Uh, Philip Rogers has been named the next chancellor. I think it's the eighth, maybe, in ECU history. He was the chief of staff to uh, the person who was chancellor from 2008 to 2013, so he knows the campus. I was department chair at that time, and I really have no recollection uh, whatsoever of the chief of staff. I had a good relationship with Steve Ballard, who was the chancellor then, uh, and I'm hoping that the fact I don't remember anything about the person who was his his uh, right hand is a good thing, meaning that wasn't his hatchet man. He was just someone who got things done and organized meetings. We'll find out, certainly, and I'll keep you abreast of that. Now that it's the middle of January, the college football season is mercifully over, and I think we can all agree that it is time to promote the University of Alabama to the NFL. Uh, if necessary to make room, we could relegate uh, my hometown team, Detroit Lions, to the Big Ten, and then everybody would win. The Lions would have a chance to win something since their players wouldn't be distracted by classes like the student-athletes at the other teams. Alabama would get some decent competition, and college football fans everywhere would get the possibility of a champion not in the SEC. So, win, win, win. We'll see if that happens. Uh, before moving on uh, to other show business, I want to ask you a question this evening that came up over the past uh, winter break as I was toting books back and forth between my office uh, on campus and my office at home, the thought of getting a book reader, a Kindle or other device, became more and more appealing. And so let me ask you, you read books, uh, some of you say you, you read or at least buy more books than is, is desirable after listening to these shows. Is it a good idea? Do you use a reader? Do you read on a tablet, uh, Kindle? Paperwhite, Oasis, all these names I'm learning about. I've tried reading on a tablet. I find I don't like it at all. And indeed, the one argument that has caused me to, to question my utter loyalty to the paper book is the thought that with a, uh, with a device, with, a, a say, a Paperwhite, I could take it on an airplane or just into the chair in the backyard and unlike a tablet, I wouldn't have the internet with me. I wouldn't have the constant temptation to check email, to see what's happening at work, to see what's happening in the world. Uh, people say, oh, you know, you can read it on your computer, on your laptop, on your tablet, but that just does not work for me. But a device that didn't let me do anything else would be just like a real book, and then I might be able to stay focused on it. So let me know your thoughts. If you have a reader and like it, if you have tried one and don't like it, if you don't have a reader and don't 
want to get one, feel free to keep that to yourself. Um, I'm, I'm, I understand many good reasons why people don't want them. Uh, but if you do have one and either do or do not like it, uh, I'd be curious to know what your thoughts are. And uh, the voice repeats my email address multiple times a show so you know where to reach me on that. You also know where to go to find out who's coming up next on the show at www.impedimentsofwar.org. Mark Gaffney keeps that site up to date, and uh, it's not super up to date at the moment because I haven't told him who's coming up next, and that's my fault. Uh, But we do have some excellent shows coming up in the year ahead. Uh, In fact, I have to switch on my own document here to see uh, what's going on in the next few days. Next week, for example, let's click on the correct button here, and there it is. Next week, uh, Jim Gindelsberger joins us to talk about hospitals at Gettysburg. He's written a guidebook on bullets and bandages uh, at the Gettysburg battlefield area. So if you think you've been to Gettysburg and seen everything there, seen all the monuments and the battle sites, you may not, and I know I have not, seen the many sites that are well-preserved where the wounded were cared for after the battle, an important factor we often overlook. And the guidebook is quite handsome. So uh, we'll talk about him. On the 27th of January, Ron Coddington returns to the show. He, uh, you know, does marvelous Civil War photography. And uh, we've had him on the show before. His next book, or the current new book, um, is called Faces of Civil War Nurses. And has both uh, extraordinary photographs and wonderful stories about individuals whose stories aren't often told. Uh, there's, uh, I'm continuing to schedule the weeks ahead. I won't go through all of them. We'll have a Lincoln show on February 10th. Uh, people coming up in the season late February and March include, uh, uh, let's see, do we have uh, a secession on trial, the treason prosecution of Jefferson Davis. Uh, we've got James Byrd talking about religion in the Civil War, Leanna Keith on a radical Republican history of the war, Brian Jordan's new book will be out, we'll talk with him. So lots coming up. I'll get the word to Mark Gaffney and he'll update the website for us. And while you're there, feel free to donate to Civil War Talk Radio, click on the PayPal button, and uh, your contributions are welcome. They can be used by me for buying more books, for buying uh, buying a book reader, I suppose. Uh, really, for anything, I could use them to pay my taxes. You cannot deduct it on your taxes because it's not a charitable contribution. I want to be sure no one gets in trouble with the law over that. And I especially want to thank those of you who have donated in the past. I try to write to each of you uh, but a quick shout out tonight for longtime contributor Charles uh, Garten, who has who was in my first Civil War class at ECU many many years ago, and continues to support the show. And also those of you who donate uh, with recurring donations, you can do that. Click and have PayPal send five or ten dollars every month. Uh, so thanks to uh, Jeffrey Young, Michael Sheridan. Thomas Hensley, Christopher Brady, Michael Goodner, and anyone else who has in the past or in the future uh, sends a recurring donation. Those are extraordinarily welcome. Also welcome is our guest tonight, Professor Stephen Berry. He is the 
digital project director for the site Private Voices, which is part of the uh, one of the many ehistory.org sites, another project that he uh, helped found and co-directs. It, normally, I just tell you the name of the, the guest's current book, but Professor Barry has his hand in in many pies, uh, uh, digital ones. So we'll talk about as many of them as we can tonight. Uh, Steve, are you there? I am, Jerry. How are you? Good. Welcome back to the show. Uh, it, it's been yeah, 13 it's been, years. Uh, yeah, I was, I was seeing that too. I was, uh, I think I was <laughs> Were you shocked season. as I was? Yeah, I was. But um, it was the Lincoln Bicentennial, right? Because we had met That's at, right. um, at a virtual book signing in Chicago. Incredibly cold. Yes, yes. Well, what a, a long time and ago that was. And you want to know something? You, you told me um, you, you were expressing your affection for that format, and it made a lot of sense. You said that we should be there, actually, in all of... The folks who wanted an autograph could be there virtually. And you said to me that traditional publishing has to adapt. Mm-hmm. No, it, 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 it's true. I think, well, you, you certainly have. You know, uh, things have changed so much o- over the years. And, and uh, our, I think our, our host, uh, Dan Weinberg, at the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop has uh, – he he was at one time very pessimistic about the future of the paper book. I think he's come come back from that precipice uh, somewhat, but certainly things have changed radically. Um, well, I think th- everything you finds and- its level, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so radio isn't replaced by TV. I think television is going to be the end of radio, but everything finds its level. It finds its um, comparative advantage. So each form and format has a comparative advantage, and the problem with the discipline of history is that if form follows function, we've only ever had two forms, you know, at least from a scholastic perspective. It's either a book or a monograph, and it doesn't get to be anything else. And if you have that um, narrowness in thinking about form and format, well, then if form follows function, you only have two functions. Um, but ev- everything can coexist. It isn't that one thing um, ends another forever. It's that everything is particularly good um, at its particular function. Well, I, I would say we have more than than just the the book or the monograph because you, you go back to you know, Herodotus. You also have orally transmitted history, the lecture, and uh, and that hasn't right. gone away. Um, Right. So, so we still have that. Now, when when you and I were first, when we first agreed to to talk again, we were scheduled for the spring, and then the uh, the pandemic came along. Everything changed. We had to reschedule. Then we rescheduled for November, a day after the presidential election. And I don't know about you, but I stayed up very late watching things happen, and was just in no condition the next day to do a show. And uh, so we scheduled for a nice calm day when not much is happening, January 13, <laughs> 2021. Uh, what on earth is going on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, let, let, I think. Well, let, let me phrase, phrase it more specifically. Um, it, it, 
a week ago today, we saw a Confederate battle flag being carried in triumph through the United States Capitol, uh, something Jubal Early you know, only wished he could have done in 1864. Uh, what, so I'll come back. What the hell is going on? Well, that's exactly right. Um, it is, you, you know, you actually don't want to live in interesting times, as it turns out. Um, and especially if you're a Civil War historian, um, you you don't want to live those days again. And mm-hmm. the parallels, at first I saw them only from, from a scholarly perspective, but, but now they're starting to feel almost... Um, Primal. There, there, there are three parallels that I was thinking of as I was watching um, those images, and that I think are important for people to to know. The first is the idea that the tipping point into violence always looks scary. We always think it's going to look like Pearl Harbor. It doesn't always. You know, it looks like that Yahoo who assassinated Franz Ferdinand. And so the first images, right, of the rioters made them look ridiculous. You know, I was kind of collecting these online and they were the tailgaters of treason. It was the beer pong push. It was a Saturnalia of stupid. Um, And then even Trump, right, was disappointed that they looked low class, I guess, presumably because he wanted them in tactical gear or or what have you. But, you know, those who've been trained in the Civil War know that, you know, chuckleheads can absolutely um, augment, uh, can bring on uh, a, a war. I mean, I was thinking of, um, you know, the guys who came Charles Sumner were like the Matt Gatz and, and Jim Jordan of of their age. You know, Preston Brooks was described by by friends as, um, you know, fidgety, fidgety to be doing and always moving in the wrong time and place. And he had this buddy, Lawrence Kite, who's like feeding him drinks and egging him on and rubbing his shoulders and saying, you can do this, man. If you don't do it, I'm going to do it. And he was described by friends as likely to founder his canoe in smooth waters. And then I was thinking about, you know, Louis Wigfall, remember that another Yahoo who rows his own boat out to Fort Sumter to accept their surrender, even though he has no standing, hasn't been given any orders at all. I mean, you have all of these knuckleheads that are running around, um, and they are at the forehead of the vanguard of, <laughs> of the damage. Um, Edmund Ruffin and, comes to you know, mind, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I was thinking about it, too. You know, actually, if you if you look, Hitler's a ridiculous person. I mean, he, he, he seems like a ridiculous person. It's hard to take him seriously. Um, Charlie Chaplin, you know, made such a great fun of him in The Great Dictator. Trump is a ludicrous person in, in, in many ways, but that doesn't mean that these folks aren't incredibly dangerous. And so you're looking, and, and, and this is true for the folks who experience secession emotionally when when it was happening it's almost like a temporal vertigo it's like you're falling in slow time into something that has so much gravity you can't hardly even understand it and that's what i saw when those folks were walking through statuary hall i was like this looks ridiculous and silly in some ways but man we are this close. We, we really are, I, th- I think. We're going to take a short break, give ourselves a chance to catch our breath and, and, and recompose, and come back in just a moment. We're talking tonight with Professor Stephen Berry about 
digital scholarship, non-print scholarship, and indeed the world of Civil War studies today generally. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show. The Sharon Kleina Hour. Health, environment, and the power of water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleiner Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice of America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Stephen Barry, University of Georgia history professor. And we've broken with tradition, 17 years of tradition on Civil War Talk Radio, to talk about current events uh, as they relate to the Civil War, because the events have been so extraordinary. The uh, riot at the Capitol, including the appearance of a Confederate battle flag within the halls, uh, the impeachment of the president uh, today, January 13, 2021, as we record this. Uh, And these events are too significant and too closely related to the history we've studied to uh, uh, to pretend that they're not happening. Steve, you said there were several parallels, and you talked about one, that, that the tipping point, the, the moment of violence isn't always dramatic like Pearl Harbor. You said it could be like Sumner uh, being caned or for Franz right. Ferdinand being assassinated or even Hitler's beer hall putsch that's a silly and a failure right. yet is the sign of trouble to come. What are other parallels you see? Well, the other one I think is actually more important because it's structural. So in 1860, right, you've got this entrenched minority that's using certain structural advantages to hold back the will of the majority. Um, You know, they're using, in 1860, right, the three-fifths clause is helping the slave power in both the House, obviously, but less obviously the Electoral College. Then you've got a Senate where the South has half of the power in the Senate, even though they've only got a third of the population. 
And then you've got the total domination of the Supreme Court by the South and the slaveocrats, their appeasers and their enablers. So today's entrenched minority right uses updated tactics, gerrymandering, voter suppression, the filibuster. But the point, the effect is the same. You've got an anti-democratic minority rule. Um, and in both cases, what I see is that when that minority starts to lose its power, it has to go to ever greater lengths to maintain it. This certainly happened in the case of, of the South, where at first they would, could admit that slavery was an evil. They said it was a necessary evil, but they could admit that it was an evil. Um, but as things went on, um, they couldn't admit that. And finally, they got to the point where it, was a po- where it was positive good. If you can argue yourself from necessary evil to positive good in one generation, um, you know something is happening politically. They, people are just not that elastic. And so in both cases, when you have this entrenched minority that's starting to lose its power, it begins with bad faith debate, um, then it moves to openly anti-democratic policies, and then ultimately to violence. So that you've got South Carolina, by the end, sending men like Preston Brooks or Lawrence Kite um, to the, you know, the House of Representatives, whose essential function is to beat people over the head, um, to promise violence, foment violence, and then ultimately engage in violence. And so I see that parallel, too. And, and then there's one last one, which I think is equally important, is what is that entrenched minority organized to defend? Uh, in 1860, the slave power isn't just promoting white supremacy. It's using white supremacy to secure the allegiance of lower class whites who blame their grievances on black people and their allies when the real enemy is the corporate interest. In the case of slavery, a $3 billion interest, um, America's first uh, big business. But I see that here, too, is that this entrenched minority is really defending um, the interests of uh, a smaller, even smaller minority who, who depend on exploiting everybody and making sure that those folks are divided and engaged in a zero-sum game and blaming each other and fearful um, and sort of wallowing in a toxic stew of you know, concerns and hyperactive <laughs> argument and not paying attention to the fact that we actually have much more in common and we would all do better if we all did better. What about the, the role of rhetoric in this? I'm thinking... Um a number of historians have commented on this. Elizabeth Varon's, you know, work on the word disunion entering the lexicon, or um, uh, Washington Brotherhood, and getting too old to remember everybody's name. A uh, wonderful book about the uh, uh, the, the way the politicians. Thank you, thank you. Uh, yes, her excellent book on how. Th- politicians of the 1850s, you know, roomed together, drank together, ate together, and then said horrible things about each other, but they knew it was all a game. Uh, but their readers back home didn't and became radicalized well beyond what the what was intended. I, I wonder if we're seeing some of that as well, where, where a lot of politicians now are uh, at the mercy of their enraged constituents who believe the things oh. that the politicians know are not true. Well, I think that's that's exactly right. But I mean, when your when your party's 
policy positions are deeply unpopular, then what is it that you're promising um, to the broader constituency? Um, and I think you're right that you have to keep upping the ante rhetorically um, to whip them into a greater frenzy of anger um, and sense of declension, sense of concern, a sense of fear. Um, and so what's, what, what, what it works on, though, I, they're essentially it's like the schadenfreude party, right? They, it isn't that anything good will happen for these poor whites. The Republican Party has almost given up on promising that. But uh, nothing good will happen to you, but you'll get to watch other people lose. Bad things will happen to other people whom you think are bad or I say are bad. And those are what are called the wages of whiteness, essentially. Um, but you have to promise more and more of those as your own you know, economic policies hollow out um, any of the goods that might come from our collective public life. So you get a generation in 1850s that is firmly convinced the Yankees won't fight. Uh, the Yankees can't fight. One rebel can whip any 10 Yankees. Uh, and the opportunity to do so must even seem like a, uh, you know, it was appealing. The, the, the celebrations that break out in 1861, uh, when war begins, the release of tension. Uh, you know, what, I wonder if, if there was some of that in the, the, the rioters in the Capitol that uh, we've heard about how bad these people are all this time, and now we can finally kick some butts. Uh, Absolutely. Some- no, I think there's a psychic psychic release there. But, but the, the, the material structural phenomenon is the same too, right? So in 1830, you've got 35% of whites in the South who are living in a slaveholding family, so they have a direct benefit um, from the enslaving of individuals. By 1860, that's down to 25%. So... It is becoming increasingly difficult uh, for yeoman farmers to buy their way into uh, this institution. And so what the, if you get to 25 percent, 75 percent of whites so will never participate in this particular solution and now that, uh, uh, you know, economy. And now they have to go fight a war on its behalf. Well, you need big lies and little lies um, to make that work. Um, it's all kind of intellectual, political work to bring those folks into the fold. Now, there are real real things that they're being promised uh, in, in the form of white supremacy. But, of course, the North has its own brand of white supremacy, too. Mm-hmm. Let's transition to some of the work that you're doing today historically that, that relates to this. Some of the sources, sure. some of the, 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 the kinds of projects you're working on look at Southern society in ways that we haven't done or haven't been able to do in traditional sources or with traditional presentation. Um, take one example, your, your site, csidixie.org. And listeners, if you, if you type in CSI Dixie, that will be the first thing you'll find. Uh, so you can go look at it. It is different, uh, certainly from any, any book on the topic, um, Talk about what what exactly is the what is it? I guess that's that's the whole question. <laughs> well, you know, I think we should start um, 
we, we should start by defining digital history a little bit. It is okay. so obviously broad. So, and, and this will help get into um, a discussion of, of CSI Dixie, and I'll be really brief here. But digital history is a massive category. I mean, so cultural history obviously uses privileges cultural analysis, social history, and looks at things from the ground up. But neither of those preclude a digital approach. So you could have a digital cultural history, you could have a digital social history, a digital history of capitalism. Um, digital history is incredibly broad. And I think because it's new, we haven't done a very good job of either defining it or coming up with a taxonomy for it so we can recognize exactly what it is. So I always think of it this way. First of all, where is the digital intervention? Is it at the beginning when you're collecting the evidence, is it in the middle when you're analyzing the evidence, or is it in the end when you're distributing the evidence? Um, maybe it's two of those, maybe it's three of those. So where is the digital intervention? Um, and then the other thing is, what is its function as digital history? Is it scholarship? If it's scholarship, then it has to make summative judgment about a set of records and make an argument that contributes to an ongoing argument in our discipline. That's scholarship. But you have digital history that you wouldn't define necessarily directly as scholarship. So you can use digital history as a discovery tool. I do this all the time. How when you look at a massive data set and can find a pattern in it or a computer can find a pattern in it that you couldn't, then now you have a pattern, you have a phenomenon, you have a new question that you can use traditional methods of history to attack. Um, you have digital history as the history of datafication itself. I've started to do a ton of this, thinking about how datafication is improving steadily over the 19th century. The war is a huge shot in the arm um, to datafication. And it actually turns out to be um, rather crit critical. Then you have digital history as kind of advocacy or activism or a way of bringing the public in, which we see a lot of on social media. That's digital history, too. And then you have digital history in the classroom, sort of a way of involving students in the collection analysis or distribution of historical evidence. But what I wish is that we had clearer names for all of these forms of digital history so that it wasn't this amorphous mass. Um, so now to come to your question on, on CSI Dixie, it is scholarship. So I, I always say it's sort of like a deconstructed monograph. It's like everything that a monograph would be, it's just kind of pulled apart and put together on the web. Or it's an it's sort of like a, a, a book bearing on its back, the archive, archive out of which it's constantly being written or rewritten. So it's like it, it is both the argument and the records simultaneously. And these records, uh, and I'm looking at the description here, some 28,000 uh, coroner's inquests from South Carolina in the 19th century, that that would be an, the kind of thing that a traditional historian would go look at them on paper in the archive, take notes, come back, analyze, and write about them and cite them. Uh, but in the case of this this site, the documents are actually there. Uh, it's not just your analysis. It, it It's not just the archive or just the analysis. It's both. Right. And I wanted to attack and re-attack this same set of records from multiple perspectives simultaneously. I didn't want just to make one argument. There were so many arguments that could be made here. And I didn't want to discipline it into... You know, a, a monograph at the end of the day is fantastic, and it has its unity of effect, and it has its force of argument, but it can never, ever change. 
um, right. it's it's frozen. And this is dynamic and alive. I'm constantly changing it. I'm constantly making a new argument or arguing about a different facet or feature of what's revealed when we view a society from its morgue. Um, what I say of CSI Dixie is that, you know, no society should be judged solely from its morgue, but every society has to answer for its morgue. And actually, how we die in aggregate um, says a lot about how we're living. And it says things that the kinds of written records that we tend to privilege, letters and diaries, can't necessarily uh, shine a light on. One of the things that intrigued me was the positive uh, quote, blurb, from Family Tree magazine that says CSI Dixie is one of the best U.S. genealogy websites. Genealogy is, you know, a, a poor cousin of, of history in the eyes of many historians. It generates some good data sometimes, but those people are, are different people, uh, the ones who do genealogy. Yet, they find great value in your work. Well, and that's what I mean about the through lines, right? So mm -hmm. um, for them, the through line is themselves and who they're related to and their ancestry. And so they're coming through the same set of records, boring one particular hole or digging one particular trench. I'm my through line might be an argument that I want to make about um about the brutality of slavery, or it might be an argument that I want to make about um, suicide uh, in the uh, Civil War era South, or it might be an argument that I want to make um, about alcoholism or stupidity. Um, and so there are multiple through lines. I mean, it's sort of interesting because I did all of this work and aggregated all of this data because you can also see the numbers, right? I want to tell a fine-grained story about individual people, but I also want to tell a total story, a summative judgment about all the records. And so I did all of this work uh, that I was very, very proud of. And I think, you know, in some ways what I learned is what a social worker would have told me almost immediately if I described the poor, rural, Civil War-era South I mean, a place that doesn't have, you know, there are no YMCA's so nobody's learning to swim, so everybody's drowning. And all these kids are feral or running wild. Um, it's a place that doesn't have any treatment programs. So alcoholism is rampant. All of the whites are underemployed and angry. Um, so you're going to have a lot of spousal abuse and spousal um, murder. And then you don't have any access to birth control. So you're just going to have a massive um, number of, of, you know, unwanted pregnancies. Um, it is a place without social services, treatment programs, those kinds of things. It's one of the scariest places I've ever been. Um, and all of that is revealed by, by the morgue. Well, it, it's a fascinating insight into uh, you know a part of, of Southern society, antebellum society that we don't normally get to see. Uh, we're going to take another short break and come back, talk more about uh, some of your other projects and other current projects. Talking tonight with Stephen Barry, professor of history, University of Georgia. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. 
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking tonight with Steve Barry of the University of Georgia. We've been talking about digital history, uh, a format not yet fully defined, encompassing all kinds of aspects of ways to study history, whether uh, in the collection of data, the analysis of data, the presentation of data, uh, the new opportunities that are opened up to scholars and uh, students defined broadly, that's all of us, uh, those of us who read and learn about the Civil War, that this new technology is bringing us. Uh, Steve, I want to ask you about another of your, your websites. Uh, last February, I had uh, William Griffin on the show, uh, Griff as he goes by, who has the spared and shared websites in which he has transcribed, uh, collected and transcribed, uh, I would say thousands now, of Civil War letters. You have a Civil War letters project that is different from from his or from any other that I'm familiar with uh, in terms of its emphasis on on language. Uh, It's called Private Voices. Uh, Listeners, you can Google that phrase. Actually, Private Voices by itself might take you to somewhere undesirable. Um, Private Voices, (laughs) the corpus of American Civil War letters. Search for that whole phrase and that will get you there. Tell us about this this uh, collection of, of, of thousands of letters that you've, you've uh, presented. Right, and this goes back to something that we were talking about before, is finding these kinds of records that can take you um, into aspects of history, especially the history of the lower classes um, yes. that we might not have seen. So in this case, we're at, we have 10,000 letters now, um, 
from soldiers who wrote by ear. What that means is that they knew what letter sounds make, so they knew a B sounded like ba, but they don't have any formal sense of, of spelling. Um, so they are what, are what is called transitionally literate. They are literate, but um, but they can't, their spelling is atrocious. Punctuation might not exist. Um, and what's fascinating, right, about those kinds of letters is that they're phonetic spellers. So when they go to write the word chair, since they say it, cheer, they spell C-H-E-E-R. It's a cheer. But what that means is that we get to hear what a Civil War soldier actually sounded like. And then you get the fact that absolutely it's true that westward expansion and mobility, we think of that as you know an epic part of, of the 19th century. But these guys... Most of these people are, if they're transitionally literate, they don't have any education, they're very poor, they probably haven't moved. These are families that mostly didn't move, which means they not only did they come from whatever county they came from, their language comes from that particular place. So that means that we can not only hear generally how a Civil War soldier sounded, but what one from a particular place sounded like, or words that tended to be used um, more by federal troops or more by um, Confederate troops, those kinds of things, which may not, that none of that makes an historical argument. It's just interesting to me and very interesting to linguists. So this is another site where my through line might be different um, than a, a linguistic scholar. But I, I would think... The, I mean, there's certainly a connection there that that uh, that you could make a historical argument from this. Uh, but but go ahead. And, and that's what I was going to say. What I wanted to do was to. I mean, you can't imagine how laborious a process this is. So um, most of the times when you get a letter collection, right, you're talking about a family that had a home that they kept and handed down through the ages that had an attic, that had a trunk, that had the letters in it that somebody could care for, nobody was going to foreclose upon. And then it comes to the archive intact and written in the Civil War's high tongue. These are not those letters, right? This is the one-off letter um, that's in this one particular collection or this one obscure folder. And then, I mean, you can't spell check any of this, right? It's I mean, All the spelling is terrible. I mean, you have to get it absolutely perfectly right since it's key to, um, key to the pronunciation. Mm-hmm. But for me, um, so I, I sometimes think of it like there's a needle in a haystack, right? Now we have a haystack of needles. It's 10,000 letters like this drawn from archives across the South. And now we have an archive that we can write a common soldier's history out of, right? All of the archives, even my beloved archive, you know, the Southern Historical Collection at the University of North Carolina was created by John D. DeRulak Hamilton. He drove around in his 1930s Ford, you know, plantation house to plantation house, asking, you know, rebel, the daughters of Confederate soldiers, essentially, do you have any of your daddy's old letters? Um, And of course, it's a monument to elite white families then. And we can read that history against the grain. And since the social history revolution, we've tried to do that. But better still is to build a new archive so that we stop reproducing um, the history that was inscribed that was the purpose 
of the old one. And so here, I think you can actually get not just what they sounded like, what they lived like, what they thought like, what they felt like. This is a different kind of an archive altogether. It is... There are so many uh, other projects involved here, some of which you uh, host at the ehistory.org site. Uh, one that listeners might remember is the, the Mapping Occupation uh, website that, that Greg Downs and his team have worked on. Uh, he was on the show not too long ago to uh, talk about that. I use that in class all the time, showing how uh, the locations of federal troops during Reconstruction relates to other dimensions of, of Southern society at that time, including voting rights uh, and violence. There are dozens, literally, of other projects uh, that you've been involved in, but I want to take us slightly beyond, and then we only have just five minutes left, alas, uh, beyond digital history to uh, graphic history, what the traditionalist might look at and call a... Uh, a comic book, uh, uh, heavily illustrated. I'd, well, I won't be one of those old-fashioned guys. Let me ask you, how do you define graphic history? And tell us about the one that you're working on. Absolutely, I will. And I, I think this is, all comes back to that larger point that we're making. And you've made this point for years, right, in being one of the pioneers in in podcasts um, and, and, and for, for Civil War. And so... We're supposed to be teachers. We're supposed to meet our public, our students and our public where they are and, um, and try to help them, try to educate them and try to um, carry an argument um, and make them understand better the context that they're living in and how it connects to the past. And so I think we need to embrace all of these forms and formats, whether it is digital history, whether it is podcasts, whether it is work that's done in social media. Just as a quick example, right, that illustration of the transatlantic slave trade in two minutes, I think yes. that made uh, that was a greater force for you know activism and argument in history in two minutes um, than because it was carried everywhere. Um, and so I think to to reduce or dismiss um, graphic history as oh well now you're a scholar who's writing a comic book, right? Yes, that's what I'm doing. If that's what my public is reading, I can I can bury my argument. I can bury my scholarship uh, in anything. Um, form follows function. If I'm creative about what I'm doing, um, and I'm trying to take care of my audience and meet them where they are, which is our obligation, I think, as educators, um, then yeah, absolutely. And to, to be honest, we're starting to see. Uh, I feel like things are changing here too. You were talking about the fact that you know, 2016 is a billion years ago now. Um, yeah. There's a new article in uh, Reviews in American History in 2020 talking about how monograph sales are fading and dying, dying even to libraries, graphic books, including graphic history, are booming. The um, AHR, American Historical Review, is starting to review graphic history, um, you know, even in 2018. Um, so I actually think it's it's coming too. Um, I'll say, I know we only have a couple of minutes, and I, I do want to talk a little bit about The Black Prince, which is... Yes. We hope to be the the inaugural um, history, uh, the inaugural book of a new graphic history series at the University of Georgia Press. So um, this is a book about uh, Prince Rivers, 
whom I regard as the most consequential American about whom Americans know nothing. I think this guy is really understudied and underappreciated. So during the Civil War, I call him the tip of the black spear. He was the color sergeant, Company A, 1st South Carolina Volunteers. Now, your listeners will know that makes you the first of the first of the first, right? Because you, you're the first in the state and then you're Company A. And then you're a color sergeant, which is, as a sergeant, he's the highest ranking black member of the first black regiment mustered into Union service. So we have this idea that the 54th Massachusetts obviously made famous by Matthew Broderick in the movie Glory, mm-hmm. um, really was uh, what gave the impetus to the form- link and the impetus to the formation of the United States Colored Troops. It wasn't. It was Rivers and the first South Carolina. Because the question wasn't, would black men fight? If you give them a gun, will they fight? Oh, dear God, if you give them a gun in the white mind, if you give them a gun, will they ever put the gun down? That's the question. Mm-hmm especially 54th was mostly freedmen, northerners, racist and whites in the federal government thought that they understood those folks. But you're going to essentially engage in a federally sponsored slave insurrection if you're going to take recent slaves and give them a gun and tell them and march them across the South. How is that going to go? That could be a race war. It could end unbelievably badly. And the first South Carolina is the first to engage Confederate troops, take them captive, and the first to capture a Confederate town, Jacksonville, Florida. And it's news coming out of Jacksonville that convinces Abraham Lincoln that, to form the United States Colored Troops. And all of that is because of the Black Prince, Prince Rivers. Uh, he, just from what you've described here and some other things I, I've read of yours, he seems... You know, absolutely uh, understudied and a, and a character that uh, all of us will want to read about. And the fact that this book is also the, the first of what you hope will be a graphic history series at UGA Press, uh, again, the idea that a university press, a, a peer-reviewed uh, publisher, not a for-profit uh, uh, you know, trade press, is coming out with this, well, how will, how will a book like this be peer-reviewed? Or will it be? Um, yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, so um, the they I, I should just say that I'm, I'm particularly proud of the footnotes. I guess all scholars are proud of their footnotes, but we designed to the footnotes. I mean, there's a ton of effort that's gone into creating lively, interesting, visually compelling footnotes. Um, but the footnotes essentially function as a continuous biography of Rivers even as it's also describing the sources and citations and those kinds of things. Um, so there's plenty uh, for peer review to help me make better. And there's an argument. There's a number of arguments um, in the book. So it is absolutely a work of scholarship. It just takes a format that you're not <laughs> used to an argument taking or footnotes taking for that matter. Well, I'd, I'd- Sure, I'm speaking for many listeners when I say I'm extremely anxious to see this. And and uh, thinking back to reading classics, illustrated uh, books about history as a, a child and what impact they had, uh, it makes perfect sense to uh, take that format to, to the next level. I wish we had more time to talk about all these steps forward. I appreciate your willingness to share your thoughts on the uh, the truly 
earth-shaking and disturbing events of the past week. And uh, I hope by the time listeners are downloading this, uh, some clarity will have emerged. And uh, if you're downloading this in 2022 or 23, you'll be able to look back and say those poor fellows uh, didn't realize this was all going to work out for the better. I'll be that optimistic. But we don't, well, we'll leave it there. Um, Steve, it's always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for being on Civil War Talk Radio tonight. Thank you, Terry. It was a genuine pleasure. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. (laughs) 